Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll talk to the director of a new documentary that profiles the life of a celebrated local movie palace. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to talk about a provocative new play that explores cyclical violence. It's called Is God Is. Later in the show, I'll catch up with Chicago-based author Renee Rosen to chat about her new novel, Fifth Avenue Glamour Girl, which reimagines Estee Lauder's early career. And I'll talk to Mia Park, who is the executive director behind a new Chicago festival celebrating Asian and Pacific Islander artists. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. One of the Chicago area's oldest movie theaters is the subject of a new locally produced documentary. The film titled History Happens Here looks back at the storied ongoing legacy of the Downers Grove-based Tivoli Theater. The cinema is turning 95 this year and still draws movie fans from around the area, though the theater business is quite a bit different in 2023 than it was when the Tivoli opened in 1928. That's one of the things that really comes through in the documentary, Today, the Tivoli is part of the Classic Cinemas Company, which operates 16 movie theaters in northern Illinois and Wisconsin. The entity is run by the Johnson family. Lifelong Downers Grove resident Willis Johnson started Classic Cinemas after falling into the movie theater business when the Tivoli was seemingly abandoned in the late 70s. Today, his son Chris Johnson is the CEO. Willis and his wife Shirley will be honored as the 2023 Downers Grove Historical Society Historians of the Year on Tuesday, May 2nd, during a special premiere of the documentary at the Tivoli. The film was made by Downers Grove-based filmmaker Jim Toth. We sat down for a wide-ranging conversation about what he learned while making History Happens Here. So I guess we can start at the beginning. The, the Tivoli Theater opens in downtown Downers Grove on Christmas Day, 1928. Yes. Dude, I can't believe 4,000 people lined the streets of, of Warren and Highland Avenues. And I just go back to thinking about, first of all, it's got to be terribly cold. <laughs> How did they get there, the transportation? Right. And, you know, no one had a car back then. And it was this father and son duo, the Bungies, that opened up the, the Tivoli in 1928, which at the time was this really unique movie theater, and we're going to get into that in a little bit. But do you know much? Did you come across in your research? Why did they choose to build this in Downers Grove? Yeah, interestingly enough, so George and Gustav Bungie were father and son. Uh, the, the Gustav was a attorney for the city of Downers Grove, and had or village of Downers Grove, rather, and got into a role where he started to uh, create the codes and, and, and laws for the town, and he movie you know movie theaters were on there when the tivoli opened with a capacity of uh it was about 1400 at the time it's 1200 now uh it was just like something no one had ever seen it was just gigantic there were also two additional theaters planned for downers grove which never came to fruition for um mysterious reasons no, nobody actually knows why but there were plans for one submitted and there's also f an actual building that's uh you know the exterior of the building was all, all done for it but they never had completed the the movie theater part of it so um the bungies just saw an opportunity to place this stage here and 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 their 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 hope was uh, this was one of the first I've heard stories that it's the second but it's one of the first purpose-built theaters in the United States for the sole purpose of synchronized sound pictures or talkies as we know them um, so that would be a projector that actually is playing a synchronized soundtrack with the film for voices to come out of that was kind of a an area that they saw so they were able to bring all these vaudeville acts in and orchestral acts and in the you know, evenings when they weren't showing, or more importantly, the daytime when the theater was dark. I think they saw this as a huge business opportunity to open the theater uh, within Downers Grove. You know, over the years, it changes 
ownership. So we'll fast forward over some of those decades. Would you say it's the, the 70s where it starts to fall in harder times? Yeah, I'd say even this, this, the 60s into the 70s, there was a, a theater manager in the 50s, and I think he either died or retired. And the, the theater fell into some, some hands of people that just didn't care about the space. It was an opportunity to show second and third run films. Um, it even showed an a very controversial 3D X-rated film. Um, you know, th- the proprietor was kind of just out, I believe, for a buck. However, the proprietors, the current proprietors, the Johnson family, a man by the name of Willis Johnson, he was a room renter at the hotel. Uh, this is in the 1976. Uh, he had gone through a, a divorce and at that time needed a place to stay within the town. He had children in Downers Grove. Uh, so he took residency at the Tivoli Hotel, became very good friends with the man who owned the building. And through circumstance and opportunity, uh, he got a chance to purchase the building. And when he did, he bought a hotel, a movie theater, and a bowling alley, and there are six or seven active businesses. There was a funeral home in there. There was a barbershop. There's travel agents. There's all, all kind of uh, of storefront businesses in, in the uh, building itself. But as soon as he had bought the building, uh, that signaled to the current uh, proprietor of the theater who was leasing the theater he shuttered the theater, closed for remodeling, never explained anything, just skipped town. And uh, and, and as Willis explained to me, uh, that turned into uh, a, a court battle. He and his family eventually took possession of the theater after making a couple of code updates for the village, which took the theater out of the longest running open theater status in, in Illinois oh. um, because of that small, uh, short period of time it was shuttered. They made the updates, and then he, Willis really fell in love with the business and they started to do what they could to upgrade the theater when they took it over there had been leaks in the ceiling the 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 plaster work was all destroyed everybody had gone in and painted this this is a four-story auditorium with just this colossal dome at the top of it it's 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 just a gorgeous room to be in all of this proscenium arch detail and and all of it was painted one color he had built a movie screen in front of the proscenium arch the the all of the beautiful detail work in the plaster was all covered in sound curtains and you know just these kind of dilapidated chairs and and that's what they inherited when they when they purchased it and step by step little by little this family took every dollar they had every hour they had and restored this place back well beyond its its majesty when it had opened so those types of stories are always really intriguing because you know it doesn't seem like willis johnson you know had any aspirations to get into the the movie business he kind of falls into it but then falls in love with it. it exactly and uh and and his wife shirley they had met through this process they they went on to to run this as a business and and shortly after kind of Putting this together as a business, they established what's called Classic Cinemas, which is still in business today. Classic Cinemas owns and runs uh, 16 movie theaters across the Chicagoland area and up into Wisconsin. But their goal was to find these main street theaters uh, that were in distress and, and, and being sold you know, near, near auction or they were, they were shuttered. And they took the time and they care and they, and they restored some of them and other ones they turned into active multiplexes or, or, or movie, movie houses with different screens. Um, but the Tivoli has always been very special to them. It's the one theater that they have not split up or turned into something else. And it's, it's really just, just a, a, an example of, of uh, it's become a community stage for Downers Grove. There's children's performances and, like I had mentioned before, a, a artists on tour that come in. It's just it's a great room to play. I was going to say it definitely stands out among the uh, DuPage theaters. You know, I grew up in Wheaton, and the Wheaton Theater was still open, and the Glen Art Theater is still running, but you can tell that those were divided up. They were once grand theaters yes. that were turned into, which I understand why, for business reasons. But the Tivoli, I can't think of another suburban theater that's just one screen. Right. Yeah, it's kind of the crown jewel in their collection. And interestingly, what 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 forced these movie theaters to have to multiplex was two things. One of them, there was a tremendous drive of theater goers to get off of Main Street and into the shopping centers. So these, you know, AMCs and all these theaters were starting to build these multiplexes. And and what was happening is the theater industry was showing multiple films in, in one theater. 
they require a, a theater owner to run for an extended period of time on the same screen. So if you only have one screen, you have to pick one movie. You can't flip back and forth night after night. That's just something the industry won't allow. So the industry really forced this, this multiplexing of, of theaters to happen. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Downers Grove-based filmmaker Jim Toth about his new documentary, History Happens Here, the Tivoli Theater. It's all about the history of the Downers Grove-based Tivoli Theater. A big part of the documentary is uh, you sitting down with Willis Johnson, his second wife, Shirley, and then his son, Chris, who's the current CEO of Classic Cinemas, who I've, I've had Chris on the show a few times just to talk about like the state of the movie industry, and, and it's always fun to talk to him. So how old is uh, Willis? Willis, I believe, and I don't want to say the wrong age, I think he's 87. Okay. He's able to recall a lot of details. Wait. I mean, I have trouble going back uh, a few years thinking about different things that happened in my life, and here he is recounting, like, each step of the process. Right, and and methodically and 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 with great precision, everything from taking the chandeliers down and cleaning them, you know, bulb by bulb, pane of glass at a time, and, and, and all the things that happened all the way through, you know, stories that didn't make the final cut. When I had done the pre-interview with the family, um, Chris had told me this great story about his dad's car. He drives a Camry, and uh, this was at the time, you know, it was probably 12, 13 years old. It was rusty, falling apart. And they said, Dad, you need a new car. And he goes, no, no, I, I can't buy a new car. If I buy a new car, I won't be able to buy new curtains for the Tivoli. And it was like, what a, what a, what a commitment, you know, as a, not only as a family, but as a, a human being to, to find something so worthwhile to preserve, to just drive that kind of effort into it. I, I just found it to be remarkable, the whole, the whole family. Over the, the decades, the Tivoli has survived a lot uh, and overcome a lot of challenges, including less than uh, desirable owners and then changing trends with maybe younger people going to malls instead. Uh, yet it, it survives and continues to operate. And then, of course, 2020 happens, uh, and that's when I would have Chris on, and we talked about kind of the state of the cinema business uh, in 2020, though. That kind of felt like that might be the thing that kills a lot of local theaters, but the, the Tivoli was able to, to keep going. They really got creative because they needed to. And um, they started to rent out the marquees for, for messaging during the time, just like things you wouldn't think of that just were able to bring in some kind of income. Uh, this is a, you know, they're, like I said, they're the number one film chain, uh, film theater chain in Illinois, 39th in the country. That's, that's a huge commitment to business. And without, you know, at that time too, the movie studios, they all advanced their technology to start streaming movie releases on cable, uh, in, into the home, online. They had changed their business model and kind of left theater owners, uh, you know, in, in a position to not be in a, uh, the sole release agent of, of a film in the future. So it, it changed a lot. It changed everything. But uh, their family persevered, and, and, the, and they made it through, and they're, they're still a thriving thing. But they, they turned inward and looked at their internal technology. They they rebuilt their ticketing platform. They did a lot of stuff in that time that when a lot of people were just sitting idle, they they, they reinvested in themselves. You currently live in, in Downers Grove. And so as I mentioned, I was aware of the, the Tivoli, but I had my own local theaters. So do you get the sense that do people in Downers Grove make an effort to go to the Tivoli rather than to somewhere else? There's a sense of community support. There There, there is. I think people really they have a a relationship with their hometown theater it's especially as you get you know older in age um it, it became something like well that's the only place i can walk to and 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 see a a film that's still true uh you know there's thousands of people in Downers Grove that are within walking distance of the theater. And that's how so many people get there. They, they have this gigantic auditorium, which fills up for the big Avengers releases and, you know, just kind of has a steady stream of traffic for the others. Uh, they've also opened up a small satellite theater called the Willis Theater, which is uh, about a maybe a 50-seat auditorium. It's uh, reclining chairs, a little bit more of the modern amenities of film. And they'll show some different films and, and art art films in there, which is really, really nice as a way to give back just culturally. But yeah, I think Downers 
people of Downers Grove have a, uh, a connection, an emotional connection to that that theater, um, that marquee, that iconic, you know, kind of just look of the theater, kind of sitting in the in the middle of town. It, it means something to us. Uh, so to see it preserved in this way or to, to hear its kind of origin story is, is, is pretty exciting. I, I didn't think I would be this interested in a film about this theater as, as, I, as I am after having gone through all of the research and everything. What was the research process like? Did you it was, to- I mean, sitting down with the Johnsons and then Willis was kind enough to open up the archives of classic cinema to, to me, which is a, a, a room, you know, 12 by 10. Shelves, every newspaper article ever written since the 20s, every photograph ever taken. I mean, I was, it was an embarrassment of riches as far as being able to go into this. Um, there had been quite a bit written about the, the, the earlier theater parts, pay stubs, uh, you name it, tax record. I mean, just like really, really cool things and really interesting ways for me to understand what this building and what this business meant to the village of Downers Grove. History Happens Here, the Tivoli Theater, premieres on Tuesday, May 2nd at the Tivoli, of course. People can get tickets at downersgrovehistory.org. And so the film's going to be shown. Is there going to be like a Q&A? Yes, there is. There's going to be, uh, first of all, Willis and Shirley Johnson are getting a Historian of the Year Award, obviously for their participation in this, but also all they've done over their years. That award will be given that night. I'm, I'm doing a small little preamble to talking about the film, much of what we're talking about today. So you'll have to sit through seven minutes of that. And <laughs> And then the film will premiere, and there's a short uh, meet and greet afterwards with everybody. But uh, yeah, it's uh, May 2nd, 6 o'clock, and uh, dghistory.org backslash tickets would be the place you'd go uh, for those. We want people to, to go on uh, Tuesday, May 2nd, uh, but if people can't make it out, do you know what's going to happen to the yes, film? Yes, yes. Uh, there's going to be a, one, one more showing of this film, I believe, at the LaGrange Theater location, um, and uh, that will be at the end of May. Uh, so we're really excited about that second uh, screening of that. And then um, after that, it will be made available on the on the dghistory.org website, and uh, everybody can kind of view it at that point. As someone who likes films and film history and local history, I had a lot of fun watching it. Jim, thanks so much for making time to talk with us. I had a lot of fun making it, and I really appreciate you taking time to talk to me today. That was Jim Toth. He's the director behind the new documentary, History Happens Here, the Tivoli Theater. The film will make its world premiere Tuesday, May 2nd, at the Tivoli, of course. The screening is part of an event recognizing Willis and Shirley Johnson, the couple who owned and operated the Tivoli during the second half of its long life, which is still going strong. You can learn more about the Tivoli at classiccinemas.com Tivoli, and you can get tickets to the screening at History. And you are listening to the art section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good morning, Gary. Alicia Harris's award-winning play, Is God Is, is making its Chicago premiere at a Red Orchid Theater. The God in this play is a mother of twin daughters, young adults who she tasks with avenging her by killing their father. The women set off on their mission, and there will be blood. I'll leave it to the critics to tell us more about the premise. Jonathan, we'll start with you. Sounds a little bit like a Greek tragedy mashed up with a Quentin Tarantino film. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, that's not a, that's not a bad description at all. I kind of thought it was a Greek tragedy mashed up with an Elizabethan revenge tragedy, mm. but that's pretty much like a Quentin Tarantino <laughs> film. Yeah. But th- here, here's the deal. Chicago is a town that loves realistic theater, realism. So productions in a totally non-realistic highly presentational style are rare. And even Shakespeare, uh, you know, usually is done as naturalistically as possible. Now, Isgat is, is, is one of those rare ones, a work of brutal poetry and violence, bloody physical action, 
which could not possibly be done in a completely realistic way, or, you know, it would just horrify people. Under director Marty Goebel, a really fine cast throws itself 100% into this piece, which is passionate and vicious and visceral and really somewhat odd, and it's not going to be to everyone's taste. Um, it's a 2016 play by Alicia Harris, an award-winning playwright, Gary, as you mentioned, and uh, as you also mentioned, it owes a great deal. It owes a great deal to revenge tragedy and Greek tragedy as well, or so it seems to me. Um, as is often the case in Greek tragedy, the play concerns a curse of violence, which appears to be passed through several generations of one family. Uh, and uh, uh, also, the, like the Greek tragedy, the action and the language are highly focused and very condensed. The play only has a 100-minute running time. And by the end of that time, uh, uh, sorry if uh, this is going to surprise anyone, six people have been stabbed or beaten <laughs> or burned to death. Yikes. Uh, and it's all done, unlike Greek tragedy, all the violence is played out in front of the audience with lots of staged blood, as yes, blood will be spilled. And yet, dare I say it, Carrie, Carrie to me, is God, is is entertaining. Mm. Isn't that a... It's filled with poetic and vocal rhythms, interesting music and original score, and interesting movement, superbly grotesque performances by the likes of never-fail veteran actor Karen Aldrich, who plays the mother that Gary mentioned, um, and she she's the one who sets things in motion. It even has laughs in it. It's kind of like a classic horror movie. You know it's going to scare you, and you know it's going to be gruesome, but you can't look away as you wait for the next shock. Carrie, I throw it to you. Yeah, I think the Tarantino thing is interesting, because I, what I would say that what makes this play a, different for me from the Tarantino experience, I mean, Tarantino is entertaining, but I have always found his approach to it to be very stylized, self-conscious. Yes, this, there are some stylized things about this staging. You mentioned Karen Aldridge. I think I referenced Buteau in some of her performance. You know, there's like these very deliberate not beautiful motions, but sort of herky-jerky kind of motions, but they're very calibrated. They're not random. Uh, her makeup is almost like this white scarring kind of ghostly effect, uh, which reminded me of some Buteau performances I've seen. So, And I think what really got me here is that at its heart, this is a story about what do you do when everyone who is supposed to protect you has failed. And we should, I don't think it's a spoiler to say, the, the inciting in, incident, if dare I say, the the spark that lit this whole thing, is that the father had who had there was a restraining order against him when the girls were little, came back, set the mother on fire very deliberately, a horrific horrific act, obviously, and we are left to think, well, what is vengeance in this case? What is they had not the girls did not know their mother was still alive. We get uh, stories about how they were put into the foster system and some of the things that happened to them there, how this trauma has reverberated, not just this one incident, but throughout their lives. And then they find out that their father has remarried and it turns out has another set of twins, sons in this case, and is living a very comfortable, bougie life in Hollywood. Well, of course, that's going to enrage anybody. But yeah, so there's revenge, but it's not just this sort of tick off the numbers we're going to get each and every one of these people under each... Underneath each of those is a sense of what the failure to address violence and the failure to address trauma in families and society does. It's going to keep reverberating. We're going to keep doing this until we look at what the costs are. And I think what you're very right about it being so open, Jonathan, like seeing all of this, I don't think Alice Harris wants us to you know, hide anything. It's interesting, too. I don't know if you got to see what to send up when it goes down, which was her earlier. Well, I don't know if it's earlier, but earlier for us in Chicago, it was done by, uh, by Congo Square last year, which also addressed violence, particularly racialized violence, white on black violence. Um, and that was done in a more ritualized way. There were some sort of healing rituals, but there were also things that were really asking us as white people to address what's going on in our society. This story is pretty much contained to black families, but we can see the same sorts of stories about cycles of violence, the, the, the wounds that people carry, internal and external. Um, and the fact, I agree with you, it is very entertaining, too, um, in a gruesome way, and I, I don't think it will be to everyone's taste. 
Uh, so I was rather struck by how very well Harris managed to tie all these things together and how compelling Marty Goble, the director, managed to make it with this, with this you know, absolutely top-flight cast. Yeah, yeah. I would say the playwright, the director, uh, they all have it together. The costumes, the makeup, which you mentioned, not just for Karen Aldrich's character, but for all of the characters, the costume, right. the makeup, the scenic elements, the lighting, they're all included in, 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 in the contributing to what is a very successful production. Um, and yet, I'm not entirely certain as to the purpose, and partly it's because of something you already said, uh, Carrie. The playwright, the director, the cast, and the majority of the production team are black. So I have to assume that they feel there is something about this play's cycle of violence, violence which is specific to the black American experience. Uh, perhaps there is, uh, but what is given to me on stage might just as effectively be played by a cast of any color or multiple colors. So I don't really know if I should view this play as speaking to black experience specifically or take it as a broader statement about inherited patterns of violence. Right. We simply see it as a modern reinvention of the old and always popular forms of tragedy. Right. Uh, you know, I only hope it will not remind anyone of their own family. Right. And I think that's a tricky point. I mean, obviously, as a white woman, I don't want to speak to what this might be saying about black yeah. families. I know that there is there are often times when black women writers who have written about violence, you know, uh, within their communities have taken taken it on the chin, so to speak. Uh, Alice Walker, certainly with the color purple, there was backlash to her writing about, you know, uh, women who were abused and children who were abused by by their own families. Um, so I don't know, and I certainly don't know Alicia, uh, uh, Alicia Harris, and I don't know her story. So I'm a little hesitant to talk about it specifically yeah. as that. But I, uh, but obviously it's not accidental that it's all played by black uh, actors and set in, in set in uh, black families. And I think there is something about the idea of who gets out, who who escapes, who does not. You know, we've certainly seen uh, stories about you know as we have with white actors stories coming out more recently about black actors who have been accused of domestic violence or abuse and what does that mean for their careers you know and there's that sense of who gets to who gets to succeed even if they have this history who gets left behind and i think that's one of the things that resonated with me is that this mother who did nothing wrong that we can that we know of you know and even if she had you know whatever she had done nobody deserves to be set on fire at what point does that desire for justice congeal into vengeance, right? And I think that's something that we can all relate to, you know, across the board. But I think, yes, there is a reason that it's very specifically set with these particular characters from in these particular you know, communities. You know, the, there is, we have to remember, there is the, the tease thrown out close to the end by the father that the mother is not completely right. without guilt. Right. In, and, in, and, in and I love that. Yeah, it's very delicious. Cause like, it's not, is this it's just his last yeah. attempt to play with them? Or is this true? We don't know. We're not really yes. sure. But we yeah, but it is clear that by using her daughters as instruments of vengeance, that is re that is the cycle of violence is continuing. She is using them as tools. And is that is that ever anything that can be justified? You know, um, yeah. it's and it's, but significant. I mean, it's significant right. that the only character left alive and standing at the at the end is the daughter who was pregnant so another generation is about to be born into cycle or not if it has been broken we don't know right right and i think yeah again there is that sense that you know you can get a restraining order what does it do are you know and we don't know this is all surmising based on what we can read in sociological studies you know are black women less likely to be protected if they call the police and they have you know an incident of domestic violence we don't know but I do think that this, you know, very, as you mentioned, very well-paced piece really, really puts us through it. And uh, just production aspects, there's projection at the back of a wall that, you know, these cracks start lighting up with red, you know, anytime one of these attacks happens. So it's almost like the entire world is cracking open um, and is being assaulted and not just the particular individual who is, you know, who is coming on the receiving end of the violence. It's uh, well done, and it's a kind of work, and I mean by that stylistically, 
mm-hmm. that we just don't see very often in Chicago. And if it's going to be done, it had better be done well, and, and Red Orchid has right. delivered on and, that. And I think we should mention, it's a very small space for our listeners who have not been to a Red Orchid. So while certainly you can kind of see, you know, some of the tricks that are used to mask, if you want, you know, the attacks, I at no point was distracted by that. I was very much into the story and having it so literally in your face, you know, as they have for other perform- you know, other shows like Tracy Letts' Bug back in the day with Michael Shannon. There's just something, I won't say exhilarating, but there is just something absolutely hypnotic about being this close to to this kind of stage action. I was kind of surprised. I think I read that the, the world premiere, was it back in 2018? I, obviously we had the pandemic, but why do you think this didn't come to Chicago sooner? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'm always surprised. Before the recording today, we were talking about, um, uh, before today, we were talking about uh, uh, Fairview by Jackie Sibley's Drury, which is a Pulitzer Prize winner. It's getting its premiere with Definition Theater, which is a great, uh, primarily um, black-oriented company. But a Pulitzer Prize winner, you would think, would be something that you know, one of the larger regionals would be picking up. I, you know, that's a question, Jonathan, right? Who who gets which shows when? What shows never get done that you think, why hasn't somebody picked that up? I guess if we knew the answers to that, they'd hire <laughs> us as artistic director. <laughs> well, they should. <laughs> okay. There'd be a great workplace comedy. It'd be like Swings and Arrows Part 2, Carrie and Jonathan running a theater together. <laughs> Well, it sounds like two recommendations. Uh, Red Orchid Theaters, Is God Is, is running through May 28th. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, Carrie. I've got you under my skin. I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. Cosmetic titan Estee Lauder died 19 years ago this week. She was 95 years old at the time of her passing, long since retired from her role as the head of the Estee Lauder companies. But the New York native's legacy lives on today through the beauty routines of people all over the globe. A new novel imagines what Lauder's journey to celebrated businesswoman might have been like. The book, titled Fifth Avenue Glamour Girl, comes from Chicago-based author Renee Rosen. Set in the late 1930s, we meet a young Estee Lauder through the eyes of a fictional friend named Gloria. Readers learn the climb to cosmetics queen wasn't as glamorous as it might appear. Estee was an image maker. You know, makeup itself is, you know, I'm spackled right now. You know, it's like we use makeup to camouflage, to hide, to enhance. And that's kind of a metaphor for what Estee did for her own life. You know, who can fault her for that? You know, she wanted to portray a very glamorous existence. And she did go on to lead a very glamorous life, but didn't necessarily start out that way. I recently caught up with Rosen at a busy cafe in the River North neighborhood to talk about her new book and her own journey to becoming an author. Rosen says writing was always a passion, but she didn't jump into writing novels after college. First, she was a copywriter. I worked in advertising. I was a horrible employee, though. I mean, total cliche. I had the book in my desk drawer. I used to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to write before I went into work. This was back in the days when Oprah was on at 9 o'clock, and I would be in one room writing, and I'd hear the theme music from her show, and I knew I was so late. Like, I hadn't even gotten in the shower yet. So, But I do think that uh, my experience in advertising as a copywriter is really useful to me now as a novelist. Like in editing? I never wrote a headline or a radio spot or a TV spot that didn't get reworked by the art director, the creative director, the account people, the clients. So I'm very open to feedback on my work with my editor, with my agent, with my critique partners. Like I'm looking for ways to make the work stronger. And and there is something about the being concise. You know, you, you have 30 seconds to tell a story, get your message out. You know, it's just proven to be a helpful tool. Plus the marketing side, you know, a lot of the marketing efforts do fall on the author's shoulders. And, you know, it's sort of ingrained in me now. 
you know I always look at like what's the angle how am I gonna how am I gonna pitch this how am I gonna market this and so that's something I feel like I was kind of raised on eventually Rosen realized what her real passion was and she began writing full-time her first published novel was autobiographical and aimed at young adults every crooked pod came out in 2007 after that first book Rosen began leaning into another one of her interests history I don't think I consciously thought of it as historical fiction. I was fascinated by flappers and the Roaring Twenties. And so I was working on a book about a flapper who falls in love with two mobsters from rival gangs during Prohibition Chicago. And that was the book that we finally found a home for. And then they said, give us another Chicago book. So I went looking and I thought, well, what's more Chicago than Marshall Field? And I found out that he had had this 30-year love affair with his neighbor who was 20 years his junior. And I thought, oh, that's really juicy. I can work with that. And then from there, I, I sort of, before I realized, I was kind of just always doing this historical angle. But I love to learn. I love just anything old. I, I think there's so much we can apply to, you know, our times now by learning from the past. And it's just always a fascinating journey. I never know where it's going to lead me. Fifth Avenue Glamour Girl, which came out this past week, continues Rosen's fascination with historical fiction. She says the idea to take a closer look at Estee Lauder came from a friend. So I had just finished The Social Graces, which is a novel set in the Gilded Age. I had no idea what I was going to write about next. And I was talking to a friend of mine who was a producer, and she had just finished working on a, product, a project about the Lauders. And she said, why don't you look at Estee? It was literally a quick Google search. I was like, oh my God, how, how is it that nobody's written a novel based on this woman's life? I was fascinated. And I'm always drawn to strong women, especially strong women who have definite goal and are the underdogs. And the odds were stacked so against Estee, but she was so determined. And I just find that inspiring. And that's what got me excited. It is interesting. Maybe it's a. It might be a generational thing, but I grew up with it. Like my my grandmother using Estee Lauder products, and it was always in my mind like a very, like upscale brand that she would get from Marshall Fields. So I guess from my perspective, it was always like up here. But really, there is this kind of hard scrabble history of her whole background. You know, Estee was a very guarded woman. She had a lot of secrets. And, you know, I chose as the narrator for the book to be her confidant and the keeper of her secrets. And, you know, it. I found that as I've been preparing to go out and talk about the book and, and all that, that it's a really tricky book to present because there are so many spoilers in it. People ask me, you know, what, what surprised you the most about this book? And it's like everything. I was constantly being surprised by what I, my research was turning up. And, you know, one of the things was that from the time she was a young girl, Estee Lauder wanted to be famous. She didn't care what she was going to be famous for. She just wanted to be famous. And she tried her hand at uh, acting. And, uh, you know, when that didn't pan out, she kind of defaulted to skincare. Rosen was interested in the remarkable businesswoman's success story, but she was also very intrigued with Lauder's personal relationships. There was something, as successful as she was, there was something that struck me as very sad about Estee because she was so driven. And I feel like she missed a few things along the way. She was selling 24-7, you know. Her friendships were based on people who could endorse her products, whether that was Grace Kelly or uh, Wallace Simpson. She was always looking for someone who was going to get behind her products and help her grow her business. And I don't think she had a lot of close, true friends. Even though friendship is a huge part of this book, I think that Joe was her friend, her husband. And I don't think she needed much more than that. And I don't think she was particularly sad about it, I don't think, but it struck me as, you know, friendship is such a huge part of my life. And it really struck me as like, she was missing out on that, those kind of personal connections because she was just working all the time. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the arts section. I'm talking with Chicago-based author Renee Rosen about her new book, Fifth Avenue Glamour Girl, which reimagines Estee Lauder's rise to success. Rosen highlights two books as important parts of her research process. 
There were two really pivotal books about Estee Lauder's life that actually serve as bookends in my novel. And one was uh, Lee Israel, who was a biographer. And she was very accomplished and celebrated and had a New York Times bestseller. And her publisher threw a lot of money at her to tell, write the unauthorized biography of Estee Lauder. Unauthorized meaning it was without Estee's permission and without her cooperation. And when Lee Israel starts doing her preliminary research, she finds that some things aren't necessarily washing. Things that she's read about Estee and things that she's finding are not connecting. And when Estee gets wind of the fact that Lee Israel is working on a book about her, she moves immediately into damage control and starts writing her own book so that she can get out in front of Lee Israel and tell her story and sort of control the narrative. And it became a race to publication with these two women. And Estee won that race. Estee's book came out three weeks before Lee Israel's. And that book was kind of the beginning of the end for Lee Israel's writing career. There's a whole other chapter. Right. I was going to say for listeners, if that name sounds familiar, it's because you might, you might have heard about the, the movie because she wrote her own book after she got in trouble for a series of forgeries. Uh, and this is totally off track, but it was surprising to me that it seems like that Estee Lauder biography started that downfall. I feel like Lee Israel didn't really do anything wrong, per se. Now, what happened was Lee Israel was rushed to publication, and that book was just not up to the quality of her previous books. And after that, she literally could not get another book deal. She was broke, and she was desperate, and she resorted to forging these literary letters. And, um, you know, that was... That was Can You Ever Forgive Me? That was that whole, uh, which is a wonderful movie, by the way. Um, but she never wrote another biography after Estee, so. What was the research process like? So I always start with reading, and I get, I, you know, I'm pretty careful about the books that I uh, pick as my source material. So I read nonfiction and biographies and memoirs um, by Estee, by uh, her son Leonard, the Lee Israel book, books about the cosmetic industry at the time, the early days of Saks Fifth Avenue, which is sort of a backdrop for much of the story. Um, I watched some documentaries about uh, cosmetics and the early days of the industry. And then I spoke to people who had either worked for Estee Lauder or uh, had worked in the cosmetic industry. And uh, because we were in the middle of a pandemic, I didn't go to New York to do the kind of hands-on research that I would normally do. But thankfully, I had lived there for a short while. I had been to the uh, Saks Fifth Avenue flagship store. I knew, the, I knew the lay of the land, so I was able to piece it together. But, but for me, it always starts with reading and then talking to people wherever I can. One of the uh, interesting chapters in the book, I'll try not to provide too much detail, the narrator character who's friends with Estee Lauder, uh, she ends up working for Saks Fifth Avenue, and there's a chapter where she writes about these names we all know as brands now, but they're actually based on people like Elizabeth Arden and Helena Rubinstein. Once Estee Lauder made it, was she rivals with these other women? Yeah, so, you know, the real... The titans of the industry at that time were Charles Revson, who was the head of Revlon. You had Helena Rubinstein, Elizabeth Arden, Georgette Klinger, but a little bit, she was sort of off to the side a bit. But they all hated each other. They were such, they were all rivals, especially Elizabeth Arden and Helena Rubinstein. And Esty has her run-ins with all of these people in the book. You know, uh, Elizabeth Arden basically shooed her out of one of her salons with her hair sopping wet. One of my favorite scenes is when Estee uh, is in the buying offices of Saks Fifth Avenue and Helena Rubinstein happens to be there. And Estee is a nobody at this point. She's just trying to get her products in there. And she basically thrusts her business card in Helena Rubinstein's hand. And nobody did that. She was, you know, she was cosmetic royalty. You know, nobody went up to her without an introduction. And so they have a little moment. And then Rebson and Estee went head to head. She wouldn't even touch nail polish for a long time because that was sort of his corner of the marketplace and she's like I don't want to get into it with them. <laughs> but Helena Rubinstein and um, Elizabeth Arden were 
fierce, fierce rivals. They refused to be in the same room at the same time. They never met. They never met face to face, though. You know, it, for, for such a beautiful business, there's a lot of ugliness underneath. As I mentioned earlier, Lauder passed away in 2004. Rosen says the cosmetics icon would be thrilled to know her legacy is still very much intact. She was so success-focused, you know, and if she saw where her brand has gone today, she is now the second largest cosmetic company in the world. All the brands that fall under her umbrella from MAC, Bumble and Bumble, Aveda, you know, it, it just, it's amazing. You know, that all started with her vision. And knowing that, you know, her family is still very active in the company and that she, her legacy lives on, I think that would have thrilled her. When you write about real people like this, do you think about what they would have thought about the finished product? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and I try and, and portray a balanced view of, you know, whoever I'm writing about. And, you know, none of us are perfect. We, we all have some, you know warts here and there. But yeah, I, I would like them to feel that they were accurately portrayed. Rosen will be promoting Fifth Avenue Glamour Girl for the next several months, but she's already working on her next novel. I know your focus is on, on this book right now, but I did read something that you're already working on your next project. And I'm super, this is a book I've wanted to write for a long, long time. Um, it's a book about the creators of the Barbie doll. And, it, you know, people say, oh, because the movie's coming out, you wanted to write about it. No, I've wanted to write this story for a long, long time. And it's a fascinating subject of these people who created Barbie and where she came from. And this is my promise to readers. Whether you love Barbie or you shaved off all her hair in a fit of protest, this book will speak to the feminists and all of us. Um, you know, basically, Ruth Handler created Barbie because she noticed that while she was watching her children play, she noticed that her son Kenneth had uh, toy soldiers and guns and her daughter Barbara only had baby dolls. And she wanted to empower young girls to be able to project into the future and be anything that they wanted to be, do anything that they wanted to do. And, um, you know, and that's only the beginning of you know, Barbie's waist is that skinny for a reason, and it's not about body image. It's, it's just a fascinating look at the engineering that went into creating this doll. When do you think that'll come out? That is slated for spring of 2025. That's Renee Rosen. She's the author of Fifth Avenue Glamour Girl, and it's available everywhere books are sold. Rosen has some local book signing events coming up, including one in Evanston at the Graduate Hotel on May 4th, one at the Barnes & Noble in Vernon Hills on May 6th, one at Exile in Bookville in Chicago on May 9th, and then at Anderson's Bookshop in Naperville on May 12th. You can find more information at ReneeRosen.com. You're tuned into the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Some of Chicago's most influential cultural institutions are partners in the first ever APIDA Arts Festival. APIDA stands for Asian, Pacific Island, Desi, South Asian American. The Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, the Goodman Theater, and the Museum of Contemporary Art are partnering with Chicago-based APIDA Arts to present the inaugural festival. The three-day celebration starts Friday, May 5th, with a day of programming at the Chicago Cultural Center. Saturday the 6th, the fest moves to the Goodman Theater. It then goes to the MCA on Sunday and wraps up that night, May 7th, with a party at Looking Glass Theater. The festival also serves as an unofficial kickoff to a PETA-focused programming next month as May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. I recently caught up with a PETA Arts Executive Director, Mia Park, to talk about the journey to launching the inaugural APIDA Arts Festival. When you look back to the beginning, what was the, the starting point to putting all this together? The starting point was my own personal trajectory as an Asian American performing artist in Chicago. I have always found creativity and the arts as a healing process for me personally. It just makes me feel more whole and helps me process life. When I first came to Chicago in the early 90s, I was a drummer in a rock band. I still am, actually. And performing that way gave me insight to what it was like 
being an Asian American female trying to do something that predominantly white men do, which is like play in bars and play in a rock band. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I noticed that there were some challenges in there, you know, maybe nothing too overt and some very overt. And then I became a professional actress. So then I got to explore that world to see what it was like being an Asian American female, you know, in the acting world. And then there were even fewer people that looked like me on TV or in commercials. So I realized that there was a lack of representation, at least from my corner of the world. I began to be an advocate in those worlds back in the 90s. I used to work at Old Town School of Folk Music, and I booked an Asian American music night. And even the people there didn't get it. They kept wanting me to book like traditional Chinese performers or these people playing these traditional Asian instruments. And I said, no, this is we're creating a genre here. We are immigrants and children of immigrants and adopted very newly, just one or two generations deep of these artists from this diaspora that, that have are forming an art form. So it started out personally for me, being who I am in the creative world, I traveled in in Chicago for decades, how the arts helped me heal and become a whole person. And I, I just hope that our festival helps accomplish some of that for the larger community. And so I know there's been other programming and things that go on in Chicago that, that focus on this community, but nothing of this size and scope. I just wanted to get your opinion on why don't you think anything like this has ever been attempted? You know, that is such a darn good question. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, this is the largest Asian American arts festival in the Midwest, like ever. So why hasn't that happened? Honestly, it takes somebody to do it. I happen to be the right person at the right time in the right place. Um, so there's a little bit of that. But also, I don't know how much interest there was before. Not only interest from people non-Asian Pacific Island or South Asian Americans who wanted to support a festival like this, but maybe even in our own community. I think that maybe even in our own APITA community, there wasn't much desire to see a general arts festival. And I have to say that the timing is right now because of things like the Black Lives Matter movement, thanking them to bring more racial justice and awareness to marginalized groups, and also the Me Too movement. Again, opening up the general population's eyes to that there are voices from these underheard communities, in this case, African-American and women. So I think that this consciousness raising of being open to other voices and experiences help foster an environment where this festival could blossom. Um, and also, there's just there's more of us. Asians are the largest growing population in Chicago and in Illinois per the last census. So, I mean, practically speaking, there's more of us. So that means that we bring a lot more uh, creativity. So I think there's a critical mass. And I think I'm, I'm just so grateful, Gary. I'm so incredibly grateful being in the right place at the right time that enough people want to support this festival. The Upita Arts Festival will feature a diverse mix of cultures and artistic disciplines. It'll take place at three separate venues over the course of three days. It opens Friday, May 5th at the Chicago Cultural Center. May 6th will be at the Goodman Theater. And Sunday, May 7th, the fest will be based at the Museum of Contemporary Art. Park says each day will be filled with unique programming. On May 5th at the Chicago Cultural Center, I'd say that the biggest highlight is a movie made by and starring Danny Pudi. And he's a fabulous actor, a bit of a celebrity now. He was in the TV show Community, and he's in another show now called Mystic Quest, which is really popular. He is of Indian descent, and this movie running is, he's called it uh, his love letter to Chicago. So it's a documentary he made in and around Chicago where he grew up about trying to connect with his Indian immigrant father. And so he is screening that, and he will be there in person to screen his movie. And he's also participating in the panel talk afterwards. So that's really nice to have one of our own come back and screen a, a very passionate project for him. Yeah, yeah. And then on May 6th, Saturday, the festival moves over to the Goodman Theater and the, uh, the Education and Engagement Center there. Lots going on uh, throughout the day. I think I saw some, some staged readings and storytelling programs. Yeah, there's a jam-packed day at the Goodman. It's going to be really fun. I'd say the highlights of the Goodman actually are the educational components. 
The festival's filled with performances, which are going to be great. But the only educational portion of the festival happens at the Goodman on May 6th. There's two Improv 101 classes, learn how the basics of improvisation. There's also a storytelling class for Asian Americans 50 years and up. It's very traditional that our elders don't tell their stories. So I wanted there to be an option for people in that demographic to learn how to, the techniques of how to form a narrative and tell a personal story, because I'm sure they have a lot to tell. Um, and the last educational component is learn how to playwright, how to write plays. So the, the capacity is limited in all of those, 25 or under, depending on the workshop. But I'm really excited about the workshops. I think it's lovely to come be a participant and see a performance, but I want to foster creativity to constantly flow in our community. And those workshops are specifically by and for our APETA community. So that's what I'm excited about. It's a good one. And then the the third and final day, Sunday, May 7th, uh, everything moves to the Museum of Contemporary Art. Again, full day of events. I know there's some culinary things going on with food involved. There's a, a craft market. Then we'll get to the, the after party. But what's, what are you most excited about during the day? Well, if I may be so bold <laughs> to say that I'm most excited about my simulation rock band playing at the end of the day. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Can I do that, Carrie? Is that okay? Yeah. Self plug, self plug, plug uh, So my band is called Kim, and we started out in the '90s in Chicago playing, you know, indie pop, indie pop music, indie rock pop music, and all of our own originals. And we are a three-piece, and life just, you know, moves creative projects where they need to be. Children are involved now, spouses, and uh, moving to Boston for work. We're part of why our band's not a band anymore. But our guitarist from Boston is coming in just especially for the festival. So this is basically a reunion show. When was the last time Kim performed as a whole group? Well, our last reunion show was 2014 at the Hideout. Okay. And before then was 2000, oh, I don't know eight or nine i mean we were around for about 10 or 11 years before like jobs and kids and things kind of took over so <laughs> in addition to being excited for the festival you probably have some butterflies for the the concert oh my god I'm so, it's just like riding a bike i mean anybody who's been in a creative partnership whether like a, you know co-director co-writer but being in a uh, playing music together as well i feel like is a very visceral, specific partnership, theater companies, you know, ensemble groups. When you create with somebody throughout all the different parts of your phases of your life, there's this like implicit knowing and trust you have in your creative collaborators. And it's different than siblings or a partnership. It's just a very special place that it touches in you. And anybody who's in a relationship like that knows what I'm talking about. I'm psyched for that. I'm excited to see the gals and play some rock and roll too <laughs> <laughs> kim performs at the mca then there's a, a little period of time and then the the after party kicks off a few blocks away at the, the looking glass theater at 5 p.m and what's that going to be like oh yeah it's going to be fantastic so this is the only ticketed part of the festival but we're having a flash sale so people can buy tickets for 25 dollars now the code word is apita online so it's, that's going to be a nice way to put a cap on the end of this inaugural festival weekend. And we only really scratch the, the surface of everything that, that's taking place. People can go to the festival website, apidaarts.org, to look at a, a full schedule. But as you mentioned, uh, the, the after party is ticketed, but everything else is, is free, but registration is encouraged for most of the programs. Yeah, and you know, to be honest, some of the slots are already at capacity. So I want to mention that at the Goodman, you'll see that you can reserve tickets for all of the different showcase performances, and many of them are quote-unquote sold out. However, the entire event is being live-streamed on our YouTube channel. So not only can you, if you wanted to, stay at home and watch it on YouTube, I'm encouraging people to come down to the Goodman because we're going to have a whole room. It's the overflow room. So you can be there, still experience all the art happening in the lobby, which you don't need a ticket for. And then if you weren't able to res reserve your free ticket, you can go into the overflow room and watch it live right next door from the room it's happening in. Looking further into the future, Park says there's more to come. 
Any thoughts? Do you think this could become a, an annual thing? I would love this to become a regular festival, whether it's annual or biannual. This is definitely, this is the first, but it's not the last. That's Mia Park. She's the executive director of Apita Arts. The first ever Apita Arts Festival is taking place in Chicago May 5th through the 7th at various locations around the city. It's all free. You can find more details at apitaarts.org. That's A-P-I-D-A arts.org. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. If you can't make your mind up, we'll never get started. If you really love me, say yes, but if you don't, dear, confess, and please don't tell me.